Today on Legalese, we have a big win for property rights coming from the Supreme Court, who unanimously ruled that it was unconstitutional for the state of Minnesota to violate a 94-year-old woman. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me bid a special welcome to you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law. As well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, as you all may recall, earlier this year in January... I did a video about home equity theft, and I was looking at how Hennepin County in Minnesota uh, was trying to violate a 94-year-old woman's property rights. Now, this was an important case, both generally and personally, for a number of reasons, not the least of which being this happened to be happening in my hometown of Minneapolis. Uh, this was my local government doing this to this poor woman, and I am very hopeful that uh, this case will serve as a reminder that when push comes to shove, that it will be we, the citizens of Minnesota, and not our government doing the pushing and the shoving. Now, the Supreme Court would rule that home equity theft qualifies as a taking under the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment, and that state laws are not the sole source of definitions for property rights. And so yesterday morning, uh, the court issued what uh, many people were surprised to see was a unanimous decision. Uh, I'll explain why that was in just a second. But uh, this was a case of Tyler v. Hennepin County. And as you will recall uh, from my earlier video, uh, home equity theft, the thing that they were talking about for this, was a legal regime under which a local government can seize the entire value of a property in order to pay off a smaller delinquent property tax debt. So Geraldine Tyler, the plaintiff in the case, uh, who was a 94-year-old widow who had a home that was valued at $96,000. Now, this, this home was seized by Hennepin County after she was unable to pay off $15,000 in property taxes, penalties, interest, and fees. Now, the county only got $40,000 for the home at auction, which for those of you from Missouri is less than half of its actual value. But what's more, uh, the county then kept the entire $40,000 for itself, as Minnesota law allows. So the unanimous ruling from the court said that such practices qualify as a taking requiring the payment of just compensation under the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment, which of course reads that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And importantly, it also concluded that state law is not the sole source for the definition of property rights under the Takings Clause. And therefore, 
A state government cannot simply seize private property without compensation simply by redefining it as the state's property. Now, as I mentioned before, the unanimity of the opinion was notable. Now, I had personally uh, predicted that this case would bring the liberal and conservative justices together this way while I was listening to the oral arguments, but these sorts of taking clause issues often split the justices along a traditional right-left divide. In this case, however, both the conservative and liberal justices, it was very clear, were highly skeptical of the government's position. And what's more, what I found pleasantly surprising uh, was the range, the ideologically diverse range of groups who were finally in amicus briefs in this case in support of Geraldine Tyler. Now, I think this broad agreement may has something to do with the fact that this case combines both the traditional conservative and libertarian interest for property rights and the left liberal sort of concern for the interests of the poor, the elderly, uh, and minorities, which are all groups that Geraldine Tyler belongs to because they are particularly likely to be victimized by something like home equity theft. Now, while the Supreme Court ruling left some notable issues unresolved, it did nonetheless set a significant precedent. Most obviously, the jurisdictions that currently authorize this sorts of home equity theft, which is currently uh, some 12 states in the District of Columbia, will no longer be allowed to do so. In addition, the holding states that the state cannot simply redefine property rights at will and this will have important implications for a lot of other property rights issues and make it much harder for states to avoid these sorts of takings liability. You greedy corporate fat cat. You said you would get us money. We're working on it. You're stalling. Because you think I'll give up. You know that most Canadians are talking about giving up the strike already. <laughs> You've got me over a barrel and you know it. Now, let's quickly review the question presented that the court agreed uh, to hear in this case when it chose to grant cert uh, earlier in January. So that says, Hennepin County confiscated 93-year-old Geraldine Tyler's former home as payment for approximately $15,000 in property taxes, penalties, interest, and costs. The county sold the home for $40,000 and consistent with a Minnesota forfeiture statute, kept all the proceeds, including the exceeding $25,000 that they took to be a windfall for the public. Now, in all states, municipalities may take real property and they may sell it to collect payments for property tax debts. And most states allow the government to keep only as much as it is owed. Any surplus proceeds after collecting the debt belong to the former owner. But in Minnesota and a dozen other states, local governments will take absolute title, extinguishing all equity uh, that an owner might have had uh, in exchange for canceling this much smaller debt 
code enforcement fine, uh, or some other uh, monies owed to a government agency. And with all this in mind, the two questions presented before the court were, first, whether taking and selling a home to satisfy a debt to the government and keeping the surplus value as a windfall is a violation of the takings clause, and two, whether the forfeiture of property worth far more than what was needed to satisfy a debt plus interest penalties and costs is a fine within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment. So the primary holding that we have in this case was held. Tyler plausibly alleges that Hennepin County's retention of the excess value of her home above her tax debt violated the takings clause. And there was much rejoicing. Now, the opinion of the court was penned by Chief Justice John Roberts, and he started by explaining the position that Geraldine Tyler had been put in by the state. You've got me over a barrel and you know it! Sir, we're doing everything we can! You want me to say it again? You've got me over a barrel! There, you happy? You got me bent over a barrel with my tender ass just waiting to be pulverized by your thrusting manhood. So, Minnesota basically took the position that We want more money. Yeah, more money. More money from where? Just more money, you know. Canada doesn't get enough money. Other countries have lots of money. We want, we want some of that money. And so, despite that, the Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion would conclude that the takings clause applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment provided that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. States have long imposed taxes on property. Such taxes are not themselves a taking, but are a mandated contribution from individuals for the support of the government, for which they receive compensation in the protection which government affords, and this is according to the precedent set in County of Mobile v. Kimball. They talk about the protection uh, the, the government offers you here, it, and it's, it's odd that what is being uh, described really sort of sounds like a stereotypical sort of gangster in a film noir running a protection racket, you know. Boy, this sure is a nice house you have here. Sure would be a shame if something happened to it. Anyways, so in collecting these taxes, the state may impose interest and late fees. It may also seize and sell property, including land, to recover the amount owed. Here, there was money remaining after Tyler's home was seized and sold by the county to satisfy her past due taxes along with the cost of collecting them. He says the question is whether that remaining value is property under the takings clause and if it is protected from uncompensated appropriation by the state. He notes that the taking clause itself does not define property. For that, the court draws on existing rules or understandings about property rights, uh, such as Phillips v. Washington Legal Foundation, which established that state law is one important source, but state law cannot be the only source. Otherwise, a state could simply sidestep the takings clause 
by disavowing traditional property interests in assets it wishes to appropriate. Essentially, the takings clause would be a dead letter if a state could simply exclude from its definition of property any interest that the state wished to take. And so, he says, we also look to traditional property law principles plus historical practice and this court's precedents. So he says the principle that a government may not take more from a taxpayer than she owes can trace its origins back at least as far as Runnymede in 1215, when King John recognized in Magna Carta that when his sheriff or bailiff came to collect any debt owed from a dead man, that they could remove property until the debt, which is evident, shall be fully paid to us and the residue shall be left to the executors to fulfill the will of the deceased. And this is a doctrine that became rooted in English law. Now, this principle would make its way across the Atlantic. In collecting taxes, the new government of the United States could seize and sell only so much of a tract of land as may be necessary to satisfy the taxes due thereon. Ten states adopted similar statutes shortly after their founding. And uh, Roberts went on to say, the consensus that a government could not take more property than it was owed held true through the passage of the 14th Amendment, and states, including Minnesota, continued to require no more than the minimum amount of land be sold to satisfy the outstanding tax debt. The minority rule then remains the minority rule today. 36 states and the federal government require excess value to be returned to the taxpayer. And finally, Minnesota law itself recognizes that in other contexts, a property owner is entitled to the surplus in excess of her debt. Under state law, a private creditor may enforce a judgment against a debtor by selling her real property but, quote, no more shall be sold than is sufficient to satisfy the debt, and the creditor may receive only so much of the proceeds as will satisfy, end quote. And so, in collecting all other taxes, Minnesota protects the taxpayer's rights to surplus. This was until 1935. Minnesota followed the same rule for the sale of real property. The state could only sell the least quantity of land sufficient to satisfy the debt, and any surplus realized from the sale must revert to the owner. The state now makes an exception only for itself, and only for taxes on real property. But property rights cannot be so easily manipulated. Uh, and this is in line with the precedent in Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. Minnesota may not extinguish a property interest that it recognizes everywhere else to avoid paying just compensation when it is the one doing the taking. And uh, in his brief and at oral argument, uh, Neil Cadle. Uh, who was the litigator representing Hennepin County, claimed, 
the Geraldine Tyler lacked standing to challenge the seizure of her home equity. Now, the court would reject his convoluted theory, pointing out, uh, pointing out correctly, might I add, the Tyler's claim to the $25,000 in home equity, it, quote, is a classic pocketbook injury sufficient to give her standing, end quote. Now, the court also rejected the similarly weak arguments that Tyler had constructively abandoned her property by failing to pay the taxes and fees. And while today's ruling was a very important win for property rights and does set a significant precedent, it is vague on one key point and leaves others for future resolution by the lower courts. Though the court dis uh, decisively repudiated the idea that the state law is the sole source of property rights under the takings clause, the formulation that Justice Roberts used that the court must, quote, also look to traditional property law principles plus historical practice and this court's precedent, end quote, is far from precise. For example, what would happen if some of these factors cut in favor of the government and others in favor of the property owner? It is also not clear what qualifies as a, quote, traditional property right principle, end quote. Now, perhaps his vagueness was the price that the chief had to pay to generate this rare unanimous taking clause ruling. It's entirely possible that the justices may have not been able to agree on anything more precise than that. However, regardless, the question of how to apply the court standard for identifying property rights is likely to bedevil the lower courts and may have to be clarified in the future by another Supreme Court case. So the Supreme Court did leave it to the lower courts. Uh, the question of how to calculate compensation in home equity theft cases as well. Now, during oral arguments, the justices had struggled with the issue of whether Tyler should automatically get all of the surplus value from the sale of her property at auction or whether she should instead get the difference between the amount she owed the government and the value of the property at the time it was foreclosed for tax delinquency. The court chose not to resolve this issue and now leaves it up to the lower courts. And finally, in addition to her claim as far as the takings clause, uh, you will remember there was a second part to her QP uh, where uh, Tyler argued the seizure of her home equity violated the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment. Because Tyler prevailed on the takings clause issue, the Supreme Court chose not to address the excessive fines clause. However, conservative Neil Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion with liberal Katanji Jackson Brown, in which they concluded that Tyler should likely have prevailed on this issue as well had the court reached it. So they say, given its taking clause holdings, the court understandably declines to pass on the question whether the Eighth Circuit committed a further error when it dismissed Ms. Tyler's claims under the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause. But 
even a cursory review of the district court's excessive fines analysis, which the Eighth Circuit adopted as well-reasoned, reveals that it, too, contains mistakes that future lower courts should not be quick to emulate. The first of these, the district court concluded that the Minnesota tax forfeiture scheme is not punitive because, quote, its primary purpose is remedial, end quote. In other words, it is aimed at compensating the government for lost revenue due to the non-payment of taxes. That primary purpose test finds no support in our law because, quote, sanctions frequently serve more than one purpose, end quote. This court has said that the excessive fines clause applies to any statutory scheme that, quote, serves in part to punish, end quote, and that comes from the precedent in Austin v. United States. Second, they point out, the district court asserted that the Minnesota tax forfeiture scheme cannot, quote, be punitive because it actually confers a windfall on the delinquent taxpayer when the value of the property that is forfeited is less than the amount of the taxes owed. That observation may be factually true, but it is legally irrelevant. And third, they point out that the district court appears to have inferred that the Minnesota scheme is not punitive because it did not turn on the culpability of the individual property owner. But while a focus on culpability can sometimes make a provision look more like punishment, this court has never endorsed the converse view. Economic penalties imposed to deter willful noncompliance with the law are fines by any other name, and the Constitution has something to say about them, and that is that they cannot be excessive. And recently in Tim's v. Indiana, which was a 2019 Supreme Court case uh, that ruled that civil asset forfeiture sometimes qualifies as excessive fines under the Eighth Amendment. And the question of whether other types of property seizures are also restricted by the clause is another one that is likely to come up in future cases. And Gorsuch and Jackson, uh, both justices who are representing the opposite wings of the court, today at least signal that they come together and are open to such claims in the future, which is uh, a very promising thing, I would say. Well, that's really all I have for you guys today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. Uh, if you did, if you would please do all those things that help me feed Al Gore's rhythm, uh, you know, smash that like button for me or, or hit the dislike button if you disliked it, you know, you, you don't need a live for me. Uh, you know, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought. I do. I really do genuinely love uh, getting to talk with you guys in the comment section on my videos. So please do that. Uh, and then I. Uh, if you want to make sure you know when I have new content out, uh, you can subscribe to Legalese. You can subscribe to my YouTube page, excuse me. Or if you go to LegaleseShow.com, there you can go sign up directly uh, for my newsletter and get curated content sent right to your inbox. So until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese talking about home equity theft. And of course, 
Cartago de Lenda Est. Fuck.